Well, good morning, Christ Church, and welcome to this weekend service. We are so glad that you are here in this room. It's so good to see your smiling faces, sort of, through the mask that you have on. But you can always tell when someone's smiling, even through a mask. It's good to see you. If you're online, wherever you might be at home or abroad, we want to welcome you as well to our worship service today. And if you're brand new, we want to say a special welcome to you and give you a little bit of an insight on what's going to take place over the next 50 or so minutes. First, we're going to sing a song and some songs during our worship service to God from thankful hearts, from grateful hearts. And then we're going to have time in prayer. And then after the moment of prayer, we're going to have opportunities for you to figure out and learn a little bit more about the heartbeat of this church, give you opportunities to engage and get involved in this community. And then our senior pastor, Dan Meyer, is going to bring forth the Word of God from the Bible. And we're we're just so excited to have him today. And we're excited to have all of you here today. Let's stand right now if you're in this room. If you're at home, feel free to stand as well. We want you to get involved, all right? Mountains are still being moved Strongholds are still being loose God, we believe Yes, we can see that Wonders are still what you do We are here for you Come and do what you do We are here Join in. We are here for 
Well done. Thank you, friends. You may have a seat. Yes. Well done. So good. Friends, we're going to pause here this morning and pray for the, our response to the election across our nation. We're going to pray for the responses that are happening in our cities, in our communities, in our families. And as I pray, and I would encourage you to take the prayer that I offer us, make it your own. Do so by grabbing a hold of those phrases, those ideas, those thoughts that strike your heart and mind. Add to them. Reflect on them. Embrace and affirm them. If you're online, perhaps just type those affirmations right in the chat area. And then after I pray, we will close our time together by reciting one of the classic prayers from church history by St. Francis. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and thank you for always being here with us to listen, to guide, to love us, even when we are perhaps distracted, restless and divided with one another, as so many seem to be now throughout our country. Lord Jesus, we ask for your healing presence across our cities and communities. And Lord, in praying that, we know and acknowledge the answer to that prayer might be our engagement with our community, our neighbors, our families, as your followers, Jesus, demonstrating your self-sacrificial love far and wide in practical ways. May we not be so caught up in what is coming at us from our screens that we forget and get distracted from our ultimate allegiance to you, Jesus, our King. May we do what is truly right and for the common good, especially to those who have the least. Lord, we ask that we may truly love mercy as we extend a hand to those who think differently than us. Lord Jesus, may we walk humbly with you, allowing you to lead the way in our lives, relationships, and communities. And now we join together to pray out loud as followers of Jesus, both online and in person, this prayer. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We stand together.
Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing in this world will do. Jesus, you're the center. center of it all yes you are Jesus be the center of my life Jesus be the center of my life You're the center. And Jesus, you're the Sing it out from my heart, from my heart to the heavens. Jesus, be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. I love this part right here. Jesus, be the center of your church. Sing it out. Come on. Jesus be the center of your church And every knee will bow And every tongue shall confess you, Jesus Oh, Jesus We sing the name of Jesus Oh, there's power in the name of Jesus Sing it out yeah, Jesus, we sing Jesus, sing from my heart, from my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center, it's all about you, yes, it's all about you, from my heart. To the 
Take your seat. Well, yeah. <laughs> Good morning, Christ Church. My name is Allie, uh, and I am just glad that you are choosing to spend your morning with us, whether you're joining us online or you're here in person. It is so good to see you. If you are brand new to this family, we want to get to know you. So we encourage you to text the number on your screen or visit us online at ChristChurchUS and get connected with us because we want to know who you are and we want to get to know you better. We are all about here at Christ Church um, being an active and loving presence in our community, uh, especially when times um, are hard. There are a lot of people in our community right now that are struggling due to the impact of COVID. Just one of those ways that people uh, are struggling nearby is from food insecurity. People are struggling to put uh, food on their table for their families. And we've seen proof of that. We've seen a significant increase in the number of people who have been coming to our monthly food pantries here at church. Just last month, we had 132 families come by and get food. And while we are so blessed and grateful that God has given us and has given this family the resources to provide, we just know that is such a great need. And I wanna take a second just to thank the people, the people who donate, the people who set that up and make that possible, because that is such a huge blessing. And I've been around this place long enough to know that there are some of you listening right now um, who wanna help too you want to serve. So listen up. I got three opportunities for you uh, to be a loving, active presence in this community this holiday season. So the first one is our holiday food drive. Again, it, it is our biggest food drive of the year. People from all over this area come to get food for their families, and we're looking for donations and people to serve. Um, the other, second one is um, our Christmas shoebox ministry. This is something, again, that we do every year, and it is an opportunity for us to give um, shoebox gifts that will go to children in the area who might not get any Christmas gifts otherwise. Just give them a little uh, extra dose of joy on Christmas. And the third one is something that we do with one of our mission partners. It's called the Angel Tree Program. And this is an opportunity to give Christmas gifts to children whose mom or dad uh, is incarcerated, uh, and we give them on behalf of their parents. Something that's really cool that we can do to help restore those relationships there. Those are just some highlights, but we want you to find um, all the details on how you can participate and serve and love in those ways at christchurch.us slash serve. And we just thank you in advance for those of you who are going to help us um, help our neighborhood uh, in this hard time. And that is for a lot of us what it is right now. It's a hard time um, with lots of things going on, we all know. Um, but we also know that the saints are no strangers to hardship. Throughout the centuries, Christians have endured really difficult seasons. But the call to love God and love neighbor has not changed. And it will not, even when times are hard. 
Paul writes in the letter to the Thessalonians, he says, as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Never tire of doing what is good. I know this has been a verse that has often convicted me um, and been an important reminder in lots of seasons, and maybe for a lot of you too. But something that I think is interesting about this verse is that Paul doesn't say exactly what to do. He says to do good, but he doesn't say to do this and give in this way. And I think that happens a lot in scripture. But I think, and I believe, that God has equipped each and every one of us with specific and intentional gifts so that we can go and be a blessing in unique ways to the people around us in ways that may look different from the person sitting next to you or the people that you know. And so we have a couple questions that we wanna throw up on the screen in a moment um, to encourage us to think about how God might be using us. So the first question is how is God asking you to be a neighbor to those in our community and around the world? And the second question is how might you use your time, talents, and resources to help be the church Jesus calls us to be, one that gives selflessly to bring about the flourishing in the lives of others. Now, if you are choosing to give to the life of Christ Church today, there are a couple options for how you can do that right now. Um, you can text on your phone to give. You can give online at christchurch.us, or you can send something in the mail. And if you're with me here in person, you are also welcome to drop off a gift in the baskets on your way out. But please know, whatever way you give, whatever way you serve, when you do that, you are joining God in the act of changing lives in this community and around the world. I'm going to guess that you probably are not familiar with the name of Finley Peter Dunn, but in the year 1905, he was well known enough to have been mentioned in Vanity Fair magazine as one of the most influential figures of our time. 
Finley Peter Dunn was a, an American uh, journalist. Actually, he was an Irish-American journalist uh, who was known for his remarkable wit and the sketches that he would do. And he was uh, popular so much so that when President Teddy Roosevelt was in office, he would insist on often reading some of the material that Dunn was producing at the cabinet meetings of his administration. It was this native Chicagoan, by the way, who is credited with having coined the phrase, politics ain't beanbag. By that he meant it, it, politics is not like one of those friendly bag toss games that we have in our backyards with our neighbors and maybe it gets a little heated in the competition for a little while, but then we all sit down happily together to a meal. Politics is not like that. It's a much rougher sport. It's a much tougher kind of contest that often leaves people bruised and battered and bloodied and far apart from one another, as we've been recently reminded. Uh, while the famous Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill from Boston, is often credited with having said this, it was actually Finley Peter Dunn who also first quipped, all politics is local. By that he means is that we have great national conversations but ultimately, politics lands in the local communities. It's here in our, in our neighborhoods where the truth and the consequences of political policies work themselves out. It's in families and churches and workplaces and neighborhoods where ultimately the impact and the outcome of campaigns lands and has an effect. And some of us are really tuned into that now. We're feeling the effects of this most recent set of elections. I know there's a lot of feeling in our community right now about this. We're probably in the aftermath of one of the, of the most brutal and bloody backyard brawls in a very long time. And, and for some of us, the question is looming, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, whether our side won or lost, whether we're feeling hope for America or deeper concern for America, what does our faith suggest we ought to be doing? How do we come at life during these conflicted times? Well, we've been wrestling with that question, I guess, now for the last several weeks in the 1221 series. And the full answer, I guess the final answer to this question is going to be presented when we come back for our final installment next week and we talk about what it means to keep serving the Lord by being joyful in hope patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And I really hope that you can uh, be here for this final uh, episode of the 1221 series. Today I just want to lift up, if I may, one further bit of counsel that comes to us from Paul's writings to the church at Rome uh, long ago. And I'll just say again that, that Rome during the first century was a tremendously conflicted place, space. I mean, the people were literally killing each other over politics. They, there was tremendous stratification in the society and segmentation into, into tribes and groups and, and parties of various kinds. And so Paul wrote to the church during this season to try and show them that they were meant to be an alternative kind of society within the wider culture. And as we've been studying in recent weeks, uh, Paul has given some specific advice to the local church. And, and we're trying to suggest that this is advice that is helpful to us in our time. And his first uh, advice was, you may remember from our first installment, was do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. 
We have a world that has a whole pattern to the way it goes about advancing its agenda and handling communication and, and, uh, and working out difficulties. Don't be conformed to that pattern, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Keep the kingdom of God in your mind and its values over all of the, the empire values uh, of our age. Secondly, Paul says, uh, be sure you value everyone. That one of the roles of Christians is to be like Jesus in his valuation of everyone. Uh, keep in mind just how important all of these different people are. All of the, the, the races, all of the genders, all of the political points of view, all of the giftings of the wider body politic. Recognize that all of this is important to the whole. Much as the members of the body are important to the whole body. And then as we discussed last week, be sure to pursue the common good, says Paul. Uh, don't just be for your tribe. Don't be for just for your interests. But, but seek solutions that lift up everyone, that create wins for everyone. And then in our lesson for today, Paul offers one further bit of counsel. He invites us to take a further step as Christians. And he says that one of the most important vocations of believers in conflicted times is that they demonstrate charity towards those with whom they may differ or disagree. Now, when I say that word charity, I know it kicks up instantly uh, all kinds of associations for us. Uh, we use that word frequently in our time, and it's come to mean, um, you know, sort of a somewhat condescending, maybe even just nominal consideration for other people. And maybe especially for, uh, for needy people. We think of the word charity as associated with needy people. As in, be nice to those people who voted for Biden or who voted for Trump because they're obviously so, you know, mentally under-resourced that they, you know, they need some patience. You know, that is not the kind of charity that I'm talking about. That is not what Paul is trying to advance here. Uh, in fact, when I say demonstrate charity, I'm talking about a, a way of being and thinking that is dramatically different than that. Charity is the word that the King James Version of the Bible uses to translate the Greek word agape, which in its most literal terms, it means a Jesus-like love. Uh, charity is not just sort of a nominal form of consideration. It is the highest form of consideration. It's, it's a Jesus-like love. And, and perhaps the best uh, unpacking or defi of definition of that term, as Paul uh, put it, was in his first letter to the church at, at Corinth, the 13th chapter. And let me just read those words to you again. This is his famous description of charity. He says, charity suffers long and is kind. It does not envy, it does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Uh, love or charity does not behave rudely, does not seek its own way, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Charity bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love like this never fails. Now, how many of you had that passage, 1 Corinthians 13, or some variation of this reading I've just given, uh, read at your wedding ceremony? Or raise your hand if you've ever attended a wedding where that passage was read. That should be just about everybody, 
right? Uh, yeah, that's an incredibly powerful, powerful passage. But how many of us, when we got married, uh, had a clue about how hard it was going to be to actually live into that particular vision of love when we were joined together in holy deadlock, uh, wedlock with this totally flawed human being, right? Amy had no idea what she was getting into when she signed up for me. Well, Paul is not naive about how difficult loving at this level really is. And in fact, I think he, the fact that he is so realistic about how difficult it is, is, is the motivation behind his very pointed instructions to the Roman church in chapter 12 as we've been studying it. And he warns the Roman Christians that their love, uh, their charity, must be sincere. Your love must be sincere, he says. Now, the, the word that gets translated as sincere there is the Greek term, anupakritis, uh, which means literally without hypocrisy. Your love must be without hypocrisy. It comes, that word anupakritis comes from the uh, underlying Greek word hypocritis, from which we get hypocrisy, which is the term that the Greeks use to describe a stage actor. So what Paul is actually literally saying here is Christians don't just play act at love. Don't just pretend at the business of love. If the Christian witness is going to make real impact like Jesus had in mind, if we're going to be the, 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 the salt and light Jesus said we should be, then charity must be real. It must be at a level that people aren't accustomed to seeing. It must look a lot like the way Jesus loves. That's the call for us in our times, is to love like Jesus loves. Now, marriage is this phenomenal crucible for learning charity, for learning love, because we enter into it unconsciously, so much more prideful, so much more uh, selfish than we even have a clue about, and over time, marriage exposes that reality, doesn't it? I mean, our partner helps us to see how selfish we are. Um, and over time, the, the heat of a marriage can help melt us and remold us in ways that enable us to become a lot more loving uh, in time. Uh, next to marriage, politics may be the best crucible I can think of for doing the same thing. Because it heats us up in a way that if we stay in relationship with others, can ultimately improve us, expose our selfishness, uh, beat down our pride, and, and make us better kinds of people. Um, so the good news is that if it hasn't already happened to you this week, you're going to be in that crucible real soon. Uh, you are going to find yourself in encounters with other people who have a very different take on where we are as a country right now, on what happened during the election last week, on what we should think about all of this stuff. In fact, Thanksgiving is coming, and you're going to be sitting at table, some of you, with, with family members or friends who have really different viewpoints on this thing. And I would just say, parenthetically, I just learned that the governor of California has, has issued instructions that people will be allowed to gather at Thanksgiving in no more than very small groups of people, but that you can still have funerals up to 30 people. 
And my friend Mike Woodruff has suggested that we should expect a whole lot of Californians to start sending out notices, uh, alerting friends and family soon that they have scheduled a funeral for their pet turkey on November the 26th, and that refreshments will be served at this gathering. What a wild, strange time we're living through. Uh, Regardless of whether it's at Thanksgiving uh, or sometime in this week ahead, um, let me just touch on some specific ways that you and I could try to demonstrate charity in, in the kind of way that the Apostle Paul means it when he gives us this instruction uh, in Romans chapter 12. This is, are some ways that you and I can be the salt and light that Jesus um, intended for us to be. When Jesus gave that instruction in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, you are the salt of the earth, he was saying, I want you to be uh, living in such a, like salt, in such a distinctive way that you're the, you're the zest, you're the seasoning, you're the thing that helps preserve our, the world against decay, which is what salt uh, first did. And I want you to be the light of the world too, says Jesus. I want you to illumine a pathway to a better future that, then, that people, could, then people could find if you weren't present in the environment. So this is the call of Christians to be salt and light. So my first suggestion in this regard, again, taken from what Paul says here, is, is to speak words of goodwill towards those on the other side. Uh, we are called to speak words of blessing right now, even to the people who may look at things very differently than we do. I think most of you know that um, I grew up in a political family. I had a a great uncle who was a US senator and my dad was in politics at the state level. Uh, He was uh, elected as a Republican to the New York State Legislature. Uh, He served in, in New York, he ultimately moved up to Connecticut. He was elected as a Democrat to the State Senate uh, in, in Connecticut and served till he was 80 years old in the, in the state senate up there. Uh, I saw my dad um, win a lot of elections. I saw him lose a few elections along the way. I was involved in all of those campaigns. I do not remember a single one of my dad's victory speeches, but I will never forget his concession speeches. I will never forget listening to my dad in those very difficult moments. Uh, One of the most impressive things that my father taught me about leadership uh, was how to be courageously gracious when you've lost something. And in 1976, he lost a really tough campaign. He was running for the United States Congress. Uh, It it came right down to the wire. It was really, really close. He was running against an opponent who I believed and a lot of us within the campaign believed was, was a dishonest man, was not a good man. And, and, and actually he would uh, eventually be thrown out of the US Congress because he, he had lied about his record in the past. Um, and, and, and during the campaign, this guy had said all kinds of things about my father that just were not true. And, but, my, but my father refused to respond in kind. Um, in fact, in his concession speech on that election night in 1976, and I can just still, I can still feel that room where this was going on. I can almost smell the sweat in that place. Um, my dad um, stood up and wished his opponent well. He wished his family well. Uh, he, he talked about 
uh, how much he hoped they would have every success as they served the people of the district uh, there in New York. And, and I knew how hurt my dad was uh, at this particular time. I knew, uh, I knew what an injustice in some ways had been done uh, in that election, but he was guided by his Christian faith. My dad was guided by the example of Jesus and by the words of scripture. And this is what God's word says in Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. You know, the, the biblical definition of love, charity, has nothing to do with feelings. One of the biggest misunderstandings that we have in our time as followers of Jesus is that we that we, we think that, that Jesus is expecting us to have all these warm, fuzzy feelings towards all these difficult people or these people with whom we just frankly disagree or towards our enemies. That is not what love means in the, in the biblical sense. Love has little to do with feelings. Love is, 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 the, is the commitment to will the good of the other. That's how Dallas Willard, uh, a great Christian thinker define, defines biblical love. It is a, it's the orientation to keep seeking the good of other people even when, it's hurt, when we're hurting. Uh, this is what love is. Love uh, has nothing to do with how we feel about somebody or how we feel when we're, when we're in the act of loving. It has everything to do with following Jesus, with following his example and his specific teaching. So if we're waiting for the feelings of fondness to grow towards all of these people out there that we've uh, been at odds with in recent days, uh, that may never happen, but we are still called by Jesus to will their good, uh, to seek their, their good. Um, so as Christians, I think one of the ways that that gets lived out is that we speak uh, words of blessing. We speak words of care and concern, of goodwill towards other people. We may make it clear that we still disagree with them on, on, their, on the political choices or on the political policies, but we still want the best for them. As I said last week, to be a Christian is to be somebody who yearns for the common good. And that could not have been easy for Jesus, hanging on a cross if you think about it, right? People jeering at him, rejoicing in his, in his loss, in his pain. And yet Jesus still uh, looked with love and, and, and willed the good of a father forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He, he, he demonstrates charity from the cross uh, in a remarkable way that we're meant to follow. So speaking words of goodwill is creative step number one. It's creative step number two. Think about how you come across to others in the days ahead. Uh, really give some thought and I'm doing this to myself too. This is, this is advice that I need to pay attention to every bit as much as you. But let's think together about how the attitudes we hold or the words that come out of our mouth or the thoughts that we pass along in emails or in our social media posts impact other people subsequent to this election. Let's give some deeper thought to that. Uh, over the past few decades, I, I think people have grown much, much harder towards each other than in times past, Pol particularly around uh, political matters. Uh, people who look at life differently than us uh, don't get much of a break 
uh, very often in our thinking. In 1997, which was the year that I first came to Christ Church, uh, 64% of Americans surveyed expressed confidence in each other's ability to make wise political choices. 64% of Americans felt that my fellow citizens will make, you know, they'll make a wise political choice. Today, only 34% feel that way. Our positive regard for the, for, the, for the sanity and choices that other people make has dropped by half over the last 20 or so years. Um, in fact, a recent study by the Cato Institute uh, found that 62% of Americans today say they are afraid to share their political views with other people because of what, they're afraid of what's coming back at them from, from other people. They will not be respected uh, for their views or, or even have any kind of empathetic search for understanding coming their way if they express their views. 62% of Americans feel that way. Is that any wonder? Do you hear the way people are talking about and to each other these days, especially on, on social media? If you have not had the opportunity to, uh, to go on Netflix and watch The Social Dilemma, I think this should be required watching for America at this time. This is an enormously powerful documentary. It's made by the inventors of social media who now are looking back at the impact of what they've made on their children and on the society as a whole, and they are expressing th this sense of horror at the monster they have unleashed unintentionally. Watch The Social Dilemma. You will find this very provocative, and, and it may alter in some way how you think about your using of that tool in the days to come. Uh, in the days ahead, I really hope that we can be more thoughtful about how we come across uh, to one another in our conversations and ask ourselves, are the words that I'm using uh, fueling the fire of enmity in this culture or, or are they pouring the living water of God's Holy Spirit on this situation? You know, even Christians have fallen into some really bad patterns in terms of how we're communicating with others. So I think here are a couple of, of helpful questions to ask that I'm committing to ask myself as I think about these things. Does the way I communicate help build bridges with other people? Or am I just trying to, to, to get a pat on the back from people who, who agree with me? Uh, am I trying to, to build bridges? Uh, does it make, what I'm saying here, does it make uh, them more likely to be vulnerable with me about the deeper hurts and hopes that drive their convictions uh, or not, the way I'm communicating. Is that, is that gonna open other people up or is it gonna shut them down? Uh, does it increase the likelihood that they will look favorably at me as a potential partner in pursuing the common good? It's my way of communicating, gonna create the environment where there could be a joining or a linking arms in any way, even if it requires a lot of compromise on both sides. Um, is that possible? Am I helping to foster that kind of environment? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12. He says, be careful to do what is right. Be careful. Let, it, let, let there be care uh, in the way you come at things. To do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Forget what they're doing. 
Forget how they're approaching it. As far as it depends on you, you live with peace with everyone. I want to just confess that I don't think that mere civility is going to be enough to overcome the condition we've gotten ourselves into. I think just talking more politely towards other people is a good start, but I don't think it's enough to change um, the fundamental um, milieu that we're living in right now. I don't think it's going to bridge the chasms, uh, just simply being civil about our differences. As God himself, I think, demonstrated in his willingness to cross the chasm between eternity and, and time, between divinity and humanity, uh, as God himself showed a willingness to come down and to actually get into human shoes, into human flesh, I think that what we're going to have to do is find a way of getting into others' points of view and understanding them and standing alongside of those in a deeper way than we have. I think that kind of charity is going to be needed if we're gonna fix the American culture. Uh, I think that if we hope to find peace, even between people in the Christian church, then we have to understand even more deeply why people look at things so differently, why they don't hold the viewpoints that we do on these things. Because in this past election, very conscientious Christians looked at at the choice they had in very, very different ways. And it wasn't because everybody on the other side was just stupid. There, there, was, there, was, there were deep and good reasons why people looked at these through different points of view. If you want some help in, in, in learning more about this, I want to suggest you go this week to ChristianityToday.com and, and you read the article, the editorial, uh, from the day before election day, November the 2nd, Uh, 2020, and the topic of that editorial was why evangelicals disagree on the president. You do not need to come down on on the side that the uh, editor uh, there ultimately does in that Christianity Today article, but you will find that it helps you to understand what what some of the underlying convictions were uh, from the people who didn't look at it the way you did. you'll find, I think, really helpful to read that article. And I'm thinking to myself that if we can't muster up some kind of respect uh, for the convictions uh, of even our brothers and sisters in Christ who see things differently, how are we ever going to be salt and light in the society? I mean, if we can't do it in the church, how are we ever going to do it in the world? So, Let's be thoughtful about our words. Let's, let's try and think about how we're coming across to other people. Thirdly, I think it could help for us to not be consumed by anger so much. A lot of us are really angry right now. And we, in this fact, this has been a year of anger over many, many things. Now, not all anger is bad. In fact, as Bishop Melvin Wheatley once said, sometimes the absence of anger is the essence of sin. Because, because in, the, in the presence of, of real injustice, you know, anger is an appropriate response. It really is. Um, but Paul is really clear in his letter to the church at Ephesus that, that in our anger we should not sin, he said. In your anger do not sin. We shouldn't let our hurt or our pride run away with us so that we take the role of judge and punisher towards those people 
uh, that have done wrong. Paul says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Back when I was in uh, theological seminary, I, I came across a wonderful writer by the name of Frederick Beekner. And Beekner was a Presbyterian pastor and author who had just a knack for putting uh, important concepts in really understandable terms. And in one of his books, a book called Wishful Thinking, a theological ABC, uh, Beekner defines a lot of kind of common terms in very fresh ways. And I've never forgotten how he defines anger. And I've often pulled this quotation out when I'm finding myself getting really worked up over something. And so I just want to read it with you, to you. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. <laughs> you might say, oh, I can think of another one that's even more fun. But just go with me. He says, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, he says, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you are wolfing down is yourself, the skeleton at the feast is you. Anger is not gonna take us where we wanna go. Sometimes we have to forgive other people. Sometimes we have to, to, to uh, release needing to fix them or flagellate them and trust in God's justice, sometimes. And sometimes we need to let go so that by the end of our life's journey, we still have a soul and not just a skeleton. Time's running away from us, so let me just touch on one last um, idea and send us out with this instruction because it's found right at the end of Romans chapter 12. On the contrary, writes Paul, in other words, rather than further hardening yourself against those on the other side, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Strange statement. Let me unpack it. The way forward in our society as it was in Rome is for us to understand more deeply the hungers and thirsts that drive people. To not just write off as irrational or irresponsible everything they say and everything they do, but to ask ourselves, what's going on there? What's underlying that? What are the deep desires and needs that are moving people this way? Because if we don't understand those, they will keep on surfacing in disfigured ways, sometimes in beautifully expressive waves. But if we do not address those deep, deep needs of people, they're gonna come back up again. 
We had an opportunity in 2016, I think, to wake up and realize, boy, we're a divided society. Let's figure out what's not working for a whole bunch of people. Let's figure out how to fix that. We have the opportunity again now. Why? Why are we still so divided? What's not working? What are the hopes? How do we help everybody to a greater measure of flourishing? When I was a, an angry young atheist, and I was just living totally irresponsibly, and I was just lashing out at the world uh, in all kinds of ways, it was the kindness of a group of Christians that finally got through to me. They didn't stop at the surface of my life. Had they, they would have walked away, but they dug deep and tried to understand what was, what was going on inside of me that was coming out in these negative ways. They found the deeper need for love, for hope, for a way of flourishing that I had, and I'd even not named it myself. And their charity towards me began to help me to change. The great reformer, John Calvin, says that when Paul describes heaping burning coals on people's heads in this passage, he isn't talking about torturing them, though he'd kind of like to torture some of our enemies at times. We feel they've tortured us. No, Paul is saying that I want you to love people with such charity that it heats up their imaginations or softens their head to think differently. That's what John Calvin says that text is about. So let your practical kindness in the days to come, let that practical kindness be something that really makes people think have a benevolent influence on your political enemies, like those Christians I met had on me, or like Jesus from the cross has had, I hope, on every one of us who calls ourselves a Christian. As I said at the start, politics ain't beanbag. <laughs> it is tough stuff. And all politics is local. It lands in the world of relationships where each of us lives. But this is also true of Christian discipleship. Loving with a charity like Jesus has is tough stuff. And, and, and it lands locally. Whether we do it or fail to do it, that's going to land locally in the world of our relationships. So... Let's try and demonstrate charity in the days to come. And if we forget what that looks like, just go to Romans 12, 21. It says it all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And that the greatness of your love is shown in that charity. So help us, Lord God, having met you, have been touched by your grace, to go forth and courageously live with greater love toward the people outside this place. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Pretty clear marching orders, I think. We know what the calling is. We also know who's called us. And we know that he has promised that he'll give us the power that we need to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. So as you go forth today to live this out in your neighborhood, in that local space where we find out what Christian character really means, May he supply you with everything that you need. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Heavenly Father and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit be yours this day. And until one day we stand with Jesus face to face and forevermore, amen.